Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Well, good afternoon to you, ladies and gentlemen. This is O.P. Yadav, Editor-in-Chief of the Indian Journal of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery and CEO of the National Heart Institute. And we are speaking to you from the sidelines of the second annual conference of the Society of Minimally Invasive Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgeons of India. It's our proud privilege this afternoon to have Professor Vinayak Bapat. Yes. Welcome, Dr. Bapat. Thank you. Vinayak is one of us who trained at KM in Bombay and subsequently left for the greener pastures, was professor of cardiothoracic surgery in London, and then has now moved to USA and is currently assistant professor at the University of Columbia in New York. Let me start with the brass tags. When you have been really at the cutting edge of technology, what we know about you. So what would you, if I were to ask you, name three disruptive technologies which have come up in cardiac surgery today or expected in the near foreseeable future? So I would definitely say that uh, the whole world of cardiac surgery was definitely shaken by transcatheter technology. Yeah. Uh, mainly transcatheter aortic valve technology, which none of us believed in, including me. Uh, when I first heard about the technology, I had won a scholarship, and I had gone to Edwards campus, and uh, me and two other trainees who had won the scholarship, actually, we laughed aloud, saying, my God, these, my, these guys are crazy. This is never going to work. And today, I'm one of the experts in the world telling people that this is actually a good way to go forward. Um, the second, I think, disruptive technology which will come is already on the horizon now is transcatheter mitral. Okay. And we are in denial again about the technology as we were in denial about the transcatheter aortic technology. Uh, but slowly I have learned that the patient population is there to treat. It may not necessarily overlap with the degenerative MR which we treat today or mitral stenosis which is rheumatic, but slowly the tide is changing. And the third thing is minimally invasive surgery. The instrumentation, the technology is there to help. And I think we are slowly seeing the change, even in India. And you can see it from the attendance for this meeting, which is second year in running. There is huge interest, and not just as a gimmick, but as a something which might benefit the patients. I think. Uh, but don't you think? The technology is moving a bit too fast. And when I ask, let me explain you. We saw PCI story when the first, the FIM study, and Patrick Sarai's commented that if I'm in a dream, don't wake me up. And then we have the bioresorbable stents and all over the world launched with such fanfare. And we in India, Absorb India, yes. 
And today, the companies have stopped manufacturing. We are retracting. So if you look at the surgical bioprosthesis, the inflection point was at around 8 to 10 years when they fell apart. So we have not reached that level in, 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 in TAVA. So should we not be a little more mindful of these aspects when we take to these new technologies, or shall we go <coughs> whole hog for them the way we are doing today? I think you're right. But I think what we are doing is we are criticizing things a bit unfairly. Uh, in case of bioabsorbable stent, I agree. But what we should also remember is that the volumes of those stents per year were 10 times, 100 times more than the valves we implant. And that's why I think the failures of some models, such as I can give you examples, such as maybe Metronic Intact Valve, which we implanted. Yeah. <coughs> we implanted St. Jude, um, uh, the Toronto SPV Valve, which uh, world leaders were endorsing it and is gone Do on the market. And these have taken slightly longer time because their per year volumes were low. And that's why, so to speak, their adverse events came out a bit later. Uh, Oppum surgery is another thing, although the evidence comes every year once in a while that uh, like a recent evidence saying the patency is bad, uh, but still people practice. So I think TAVI probably was the one technology which has been studied in the maximum um, randomized way it can and still we criticize that it is bad. And I think it's because we are not uh, embracing it. I think I rather embrace it and then refine it rather than stay as outside on the fence and criticize it. And that is, I think, my value to this field is not to see just the strengths of it, but the weaknesses of it, and then adapt it for my patient benefit. And I can give you so many examples of patients who have benefited from this technology yeah. and which come to my mind, you know, uh, which I think if we had killed this technology, these patients wouldn't have been benefited. No, no, I'm not challenging the technology. I mean, for inoperable patients and the typical partner one patients, they are wonderful. Even 2A is all right. But can we move on to the low-risk patient, especially with you know issues coming up with permanent pacemaker implantation and terminologies which I never trained with, HALT and HAM and those <laughs> leaflet thickening and thrombosis. So uh, those are issues which are still uns sort of unresolved. Absolutely. But I think when we say low-risk patients, we always think of 50-year-olds. But actually, the low-risk is always 80-plus in most of the trials. These are the patients who are 75-year-old okay. or plus. One subgroup which in practice I have found, and in St. Thomas's, we did a very good analysis of the subset for first five years, was patients who were above age of 70 with patent grafts, for example. These are the patients who... I would not subject today for a redo operation with patent grafts. Sure. I would definitely do a TAVI yeah. or a TAVR. Similarly, there are patients who are on age-wise higher, but they are low risk. These are the patients. I tend to, in my practice, match the life expectancy of the patient mm -hmm. and the expectancy of the valve. And if I think that the valve is going to last patient you know, longer, then I do a TAVI. If I think the patient's going to last the valve, then I will rather do open surgery. So there has to be a balance, I think, in this uh, patient selection. And that's where surgeon participation becomes critical because for any given patient, anything done through the groin, uh, which one day hospital stay is always attractive. Yeah. We cannot compete with that feeling. Sure. 
and in Colombia now we have got 20% of patients who go home next day and 65% go home second day and you Wonderful. just cannot compete with this technology with minimum PV leak, low pacemaker rate with balloon expandable valves and excellent durability, comparable durability, valve thickening with surgical valves. So I think we have to take this argument in a bit different way I think. So when you talk of balloon expandable valves, low pacemaker rates, that was you know kind of uh, my next question. That we have seen a lot of te advances technological to reduce paravalo leaks successfully, skirts and this and that. But then all of them have led to either a stationary level of permanent uh, pacemaker implantation or even higher levels. So what is that new change in thinking in terms of design element? to reduce the permanent pacemaker and the left bundle branch block development and those kind of rhythm abnormalities. Absolutely. So I think the main thing is positioning of the valve and okay. that's been critical. Uh, we used to always position the valve 50-50 or in terms of core valve when it was not recapturable, uh, put it where it goes. I think that has changed now. We have started understanding that you have to implant the valve as high as possible. Supraannular. Supraannular. The second thing which has changed is understanding of what anchors the valve. We always thought it's the annulus, but sometimes the anchoring is actually within the calcified leaflet. So mm -hmm. that allows us to implant these valves higher. Nothing else has changed, to be honest. Means the other problem was if there was a doubt, patients always used to get a pacemaker. Now that has changed because we have got more refined Holter monitoring. We can monitor patients more closely. So the threshold of implanting a pacemaker has gone up. And I think slowly the pacemaker rates are in even uh, self-expanding valves are dropping down to 10%, 12% rather than 40%. 20 and 40, yeah. That's where we started. A uh, little provocative, you are a cardiac surgeon and if I were to tell you to take this sort of don't don that hat, who should be the gatekeeper for these patients? Should it not be the imaging specialist? But till now it's the cardiologist versus the surgeon. So who do you think? It's very ironic because uh, 10 years ago, oh, till five years ago, we were always made to believe that a surgeon is a gatekeeper. And we kind of were uh, gafil is yes. the word. And now, of course, according to me, the gatekeeper today is the patient. Patients are very well informed. Uh, internet gives them either good or bad information, I don't know. But my patients in US come they know their STS score. I think patient chooses now what they want. And I think the game has changed completely in the Western world. If funding is not an issue today, nobody will have an open AVR. We have come to that point whether it will be misused maybe, but patient is deciding now. I've got young patients who will do very well with minimally invasive AVR, but are reluctant and will travel abroad to get a tower. Although I know it's a bicuspid valve, the tower will not last. For them, quick recovery, early going back to work, and five years down the line, you want to operate me, it's fine. And it's a virgin chest, you can still do open heart surgery. It's a very hard argument today. In, in terms of stroke, I used to think surgery will win. But to be honest, we don't. In terms of stroke, now five-year partner data, even in intermediate risk has shown two-year partner data, the stroke is low with tower rather than with open surgery. 
Uh, today, one faculty made a, a, a very big statement that no surgical surgeon has PV leak. I think that's completely no, wrong. No, no. Yeah. Uh, all the big trials have shown that surgical valves, when you look carefully, have PV leaks as well. So, I think today, patient is the gatekeeper. And I think we have to prepare for that rather than, again, trying to make this argument that this is better than this. The only argument we still have in our pocket is durability. But that's another two or three years. And then I think we will lose that argument as well. Well, you have been in the forefront of sutureless valves also as a surgeon. Why, why was that need for a sutureless valve? Was it a felt need for the sake of the patient? Or was it a reactive response of a surgeon to the TAVR onslaught? I think it's the second one what you said. It was a reactive. In fact, if you look at the progression, it should have been surgical valve, sutureless valve, and then TAVR. But it never happened. But it never happened. 2007, we saw a big boom of TAVR. In 2009, we saw sutureless valve still limping today. And sometimes people call them futureless valves. <laughs> I strongly believe there is a role. The reason I believe in that is we are doing everything traditionally without uh, introspection of what we do. If we, I, I have constantly challenged this concept because that's how I was taught in India to do lateral thinking. Um, Dr. Tendulkar really taught me that, that don't believe in paradigms which are set in stone. Sure. Challenge them within a reason of safety and efficacy. Uh, I have always challenged this notion of supraannular surgical implant versus intraannular implant. I have always challenged the notion of you know, how you fix the valve. Magavan was the first one who did sutureless valve in 1960s before I was born. So the concept was still there. We were just not ready for it. I think today if we take again the cost and the development process out and we refine it, I feel minimally invasive surgery with sutureless valve can challenge TAVI again in intermediate risk. That's where we have to probably gain our ground again because our design, the durability, circularity is much better and much controlled. And I think the winner for that is not going to be 16 pleasured sutures and the same valve which has got small EOA than a TAVI design. I think we should invest on sutureless valve, however difficult initial period may be. But I strongly believe that's the future platform, even in mitrals. Mitral surgery takes much longer time. We know that already. Maybe not in India. In fact, I was trained to do mitral valve replacement before I learned aortic valve replacement. Sure. But that's because we get larger rheumatic population here. But Western world, mitral valve replacement has got higher mortality, higher morbidity, longer cross-clamp times. Sutureless valve in mitral will have a huge impact because a lot of surgeons don't know how to repair. Their average number of mitres they do is less than six per year. And this is where I think we have to invest. However, the early hits we will get with problems and et cetera. We, and that's why cardiologists do better because they take the problems on the chin and they just carry on plodding. So do, do you, I mean, even with sutureless valves, we have conduction abnormalities and pacemakers and all those kind of issues. So. Uh, Let's talk in terms of context of our country, India, which is a developing world. And I suppose you are reasonably fresh with the circumstances of the country, having moved to London or now to USA. 
that should India sit back and take a gallery view and let this whole spectrum unfold and the technology stabilize? Or shall we join the bandwagon at that initial stage only and evolve and be a part of it? I think India has got an, is in an advantageous position today. We have got a big population. Even if you take tip of the iceberg, which is affording, it's more than most European countries and the entire population of a European state probably. I think we have gone through the problems of TAVI. We have gone through complications, iterations, heartbreaks, etc. Today, you have got generation three product. You have already seen what the yeah. problems are. You can self-select which patients you want to choose this technology for, rather than waiting for it to mature more than today. I mean, I'm being very honest. Uh, when you see a aortic valve replacement done through a really tiny cut in an awake patient, and you get a near-perfect result, you start wondering why you're not doing this in everyone. And I think slowly that question will creep in because we went through the same process. We, have, we were uh, in St. Thomas's, we were a very surgeon strong unit. And we had a big hold on uh, surgical, traditional surgical valves because majority were done through minimally invasive. But slowly we saw the benefit of this technology. We started selecting patients which will go which way rather than sitting back. The advantage of it became is as you became technology uh, aware, you used it in a very smart way for many other indications. And in fact, that has been my last eight years' work. In, I've used TAVI valves in pediatric, for example, in open surgery. I've used recently a very novel way of treating tricuspid regurg in patients who, one patient who was in hepatic encephalopathy to just get him out of ICU. If I was not aware of surgery and TAVI, I wouldn't have even thought of it. So I think we should get involved in India in a rational way, as always, Choose the patients carefully in which you will get good results and then slowly progress with the rest of the world. So how do you say with this statement, as you said, knowledge of surgery as well as TAVI, we wouldn't have got that patient out. Should we not be a little more disruptive in our training schedules and say that there is no cardiac surgery in cardiology, there is a combined training program, wire skills plus surgical skills, and you know there is one individual like an eye surgeon, an orthopedic surgeon doing both aspects. Absolutely. It means a lot of European countries have already adapted that. There is formal training only in few centers. Like in Colombia, we offer a one-year fellowship, and we get one year a surgical trainee who is trained from everything from PCI to left heart catheters to right heart catheters to LA appendage closures to PVLIC closures and TAVR, of course. However, I think we should not expect these people to go and do PCI, in, but get used to structural heart as a concept. We don't expect them to do complex saturation studies in congenital maybe. Yeah. Because interestingly, even cardiology world is subspecializing now. We have people who are coronary interventionists. We have people who are EP. We have people who close PFOs, VSDs, and LA appendage. And we have people who work with congenital people to do structural. So we are also subspecializing into streams of structural. And the reason for that is, if you keep your volume high in one small specialty, a subspecialty, you will be good at that. Hybrid training is important because we develop respect towards what they do. I think that's important. We always think, I always felt as a surgeon, 
uh, I do big dissections and redo operations. What's a big deal about pushing wires through the groin? But first time I dissected a peripheral artery just because I was not careful with a, with a wire, it really hurt me as bad as my patient would have got a stroke. So I have learned to respect their techniques and learn them properly. And if I feel it's beyond me to call for help immediately. And I think that's the important part. Well, the, the, the German cardiac society, I mean, a few years back, had Frederick Moore as its president. And cardiac surgical society had Professor Ham, a cardiologist, as its president. I mean, that's the, you know, trendsetters. So, well, ladies and gentlemen, we just heard one of the leading lights in the field, Professor Vinayak Bapat, how from a, what shall I say, hardcore cynicist, he grew into a fanatically proponent of the new technologies. He does agree that sutureless valves were probably a reactive innovation, but he feels that that entire spectrum and gamut, right from surgical valves to TAVI to sutureless valves to minimal valve, minimally invasive valves as well as stenotomy valve, all options should be available. And going forwards, there has to be amalgamation of the two specialities. We must learn wire skills and pay respect, borrowing his own words, to those techniques which our cardiology colleagues excel in. With that, Vinak, I'm going to thank you thank for you being with us. Thank you. And thank pleasure. you very much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Have a pleasant stay in India. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS net to go your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTSNet by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTSNet Video, by following at CTSNet.org on Twitter, or by liking CTSNet's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTSNet to Go. Have a great day.